Blog Talk Radio. Um, 
I don't recall really under remembering or knowing the word screenplay writer or any of that um, until I was out of college. But uh, I don't know about 20 years ago, I was reading through one of my diaries that I kept when I was in high school. And somewhere in my junior year, I was writing about, you know, I was so bored in school, I wish I could be a screenwriter. <laughs> so uh, even even me reading my own diary entry was like, wait a minute, I don't remember knowing that. <laughs> so, so it... <coughs> So it was pervasive, apparently even beyond my own recognition. Um, anyway, so um, like most people who end up getting in the industry uh, or, you know, thinking they want to, I had a connection. Um, and it, it it came to our knowledge, though somewhere in, you know, I guess when I was in the middle of college or something. But... Um, my family is originally from a little town called Cokeburg, Pennsylvania. That's where my parents grew up, and I was actually born uh, in Washington, Pennsylvania. I am an Army brat, though, so I don't remember any of that. However, um, one of the people that grew up in this same town was a man named uh, Donald Belisario. Now, I don't know if that name means anything to you, but he's the creator of um, was the co-creator of Magnum. Um, and Quantum Leap, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So he was a family friend, and he um, ended up, he was working as an advertising executive in Dallas, and he got divorced, and he moved to California, which was a huge, uh, the whole bit was just a a huge scandal in the family. Oh, my God, he divorced, and he moved to California. Um, But at any rate, he, um, he ended up working, uh, as a writer on one of Steve Cannell's shows called um, Black Sheep Squadron. And so one summer, the summer right after I graduated college, my family, my mom and dad and I went out to California. My uncle lived out here, and we went to visit Don at Universal Studios. And I realized then, once he, he showed me scripts, the whole bit, I realized, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. This is what I've been trying to find a word for, even though apparently when I was a junior in high school, I I knew it. Um, and so I, you know, I told him that, you know, I also was interested in that. And he said, well, you have to move out here. So I went back to El Paso. I'd moved home, back home after college, which is like the most humiliating thing to do. <laughs> but at any rate, I just started writing scripts. And based on the scripts that he gave me. So I, you know, that's the only script writing class I ever got. He handed me three Black Sheep Squadron scripts, and I read them, and I imitated how they were formatted. And the show I wanted to write for was MASH. So oh, I, I wrote... love that show. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I just wrote, like, um, by hand, longhand, uh, I was just writing MASH scripts. And then I would type them up. So... Finally, at a certain point, I, you know, I, I wrote him and I sent him a script, and he got back to me and said, "Well, you, you do actually have some talent here, but you're going to have to move out here." So, I did, <laughs> and, um, I, and as it turned out, I was working, I was a, got hired as a secretary at Universal Studios, 
which was a fabulous, that, that was sort of like an apprenticeship because I was working behind the scenes and watching all these other, I was watching freelance writers come in and watching what they were doing and all that stuff. And of course, I was, it's like being on a college campus, you know, I was just absorbing it all. And um, uh, it turned out that Don's secretary and I became really good friends. And when she decided to go back to finish her uh, her BA at UCLA, I stepped in and took over for her. So I ended up being Don's secretary. And that's when he was writing, rewriting the pilot for Magnum P.I. And he said that um, when he got a chance to give me a break, he would. And the show got picked up, and I got hired to write a script. And actually, the second real episode after the pilot um, was a script I wrote, and it aired on Christmas night, um, what, 1980. So I went on staff. I was a staff writer. I had done nothing before, and it was like just being thrown into the deep end. Um, keep in mind, this all happened a year and a half after I arrived in California. So what this is, is like. The, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you okay. a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what was the um, the staff like? For Magnum PI, was it all men, or and you were the only woman, or was there another woman on the staff? What, oh what was well, it like? yeah. Well, on that one, it's easy. In in the era I was, where I was most prolific, I was always, almost always, the only woman on staff. You just didn't see them. So, um, uh, and and so on staff meant it was John and he hired this uh this other young up and coming producer named Frank Lupo who went on to collaborate with Steve Cannell and they are the ones who created um the A team uh Riptide all you know all of the big adventure sh- uh action adventure shows that I ended up working on because of my friendship with Frank um, unfortunately, uh, early on in the uh, in the in the whole development period, a, a couple of things uh, complicate the whole the whole thing. We we were, we managed to be able to shoot the two-hour pilot, but then shortly after it, when we were getting ready to um, you know go into start writing scripts and all that, the actors went on strike. <laughs> so. Actually, my, the first part of my career is interrupted continuously by strikes, one being a very long one of the Writers Guild. So at any rate, during that period, um, uh, Frank felt that he had creative differences with Dawn, and, um, and he left the show and went to work on something else. So really, for the first 13 episodes for that first season of of Magnum PI because it was truncated the season was truncated because of the actor strike it was me and dawn <laughs> we had a few people come in and do freelance uh scripts but i ended up having to rewrite them so in the very first season of my very first show ever i have and there's only like 12 episodes we did because of the shortened season my name is on five of them in some capacity (laughs) and three of them 
are my sole credit. The other two of them were story by someone else and teleplay by me. So it was um, a pretty, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a pretty overwhelming. Well, it wasn't overwhelming to me in terms of doing the work, but it, it just in terms of the the speed with which I went from zero to sixty, I guess. Um, and yeah, so that's how I got started. No, I may have passed you. Um, in that MCA building. I was working at Universal in, um, on the tour, but I also um, came in for auditions in the MCA building all the time. Um, so in, I in which, which building was Oh, well, uh, we the were... MCA uh, the, oh, the MCA building. Oh, the MCA building, the Big Black Tower? Yeah. The yes. Big Black Tower. That's where I was always going to different production houses to interview. But also, uh, as the, on the go down to the studio to eat in the restaurants. So I was always in the area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I may ask, how old are you? I just turned 60. Okay. Well, I'm going to be 66 in a week. So I was a little bit older than you. So I, was I, always, probably... I was probably past you and didn't know you were there. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, when I... Um, uh, yeah, I was at uh, I was on Magnum for two years, and and then at that point Frank had been hired by Steve Cannell Productions, and he was working on Greatest American Hero, and they were looking for another writer, and Steve, and Frank brought me in, so I I was on uh, so I I may have been gone from Universal, but by the time you got there. Uh, I was there in 79 and 80. Oh, okay. Well, I was there for, yeah, 80 and eighty and 81, and then I moved in 82. I moved, I moved to Paramount, which is where our offices ah. were in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So I probably just, I could have seen you. <laughs> yeah. You might have, yeah. Did you have one of those little white carts and that you had a sometimes, because people used to drive by, I used to work in the parking lot, and people used to drive by in little white carts, and we had to wave them by. I saw Edith Head and people like that and James Gardner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, when I was on uh, Magnum, we our offices were in uh, a, a building behind um, the the commissary. Where the where the there's the commissary and then the uh, the three projection studios where you can go for mm-hmm. screenings and then right behind that was one of those you know motel looking like two story type office buildings and that's where it was the old Steve Cannell Rockford Files uh, office section and after Steve left and and started his own production company the Magnum people moved in. So that's where I was. So I I didn't need a cart because oh, okay. we were all right on we were right at on you know where everything was. So we didn't need to go. And also we shot in uh, Hawaii, so there wasn't any soundstage to go to. That was interesting too. I it, um, they used to um, it, the the decisions that they made. Some of the shows that shot here in. Um, Murder, She Wrote, which was done at Universal. Wherever mm-hmm. she was in the world, she was still 
at Universal because I recognize the Sheraton. <laughs> oh, uh, of course. You know, that was, you know, that was the way things were done back then. Um, you, you know, the whole back lot of Universal was used a lot, was used extensively. Um, and, and then it, I mean, up until a certain point, and then it became more cost-efficient to, um, to, to go elsewhere because, you know, to either like real, you know, real sets that you didn't have, you could just dress, you didn't have to build or whatever, because um, the, just the renting of studio space at big studios is so expensive. So even though it was a, you know, a universal show, uh, it could be, you know, expensive to, to rent there. And if you weren't, if you were just coming in to shoot something like a, an MOW or a miniseries or something, it was just easier after a certain point to just go elsewhere and, you know, to another state or, you know, like what it eventually turned into where most, so much is shot elsewhere. It's interesting. I, it's just I, you wonder when that started. Is there like a, a time it crossed over that they decided not to use the backlot as much? Well, yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, they started not doing that because MCA realized they could make more money off of tours and taking people through all that stuff than they ever made off the show. <laughs> oh dear, I'm part of the problem. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was um uh the yeah, when when the whole tour thing took off in a major way and Universal was the only one at the time I think that devoted that much you know money and energy to uh to the whole tourism business. Um, that, you know, it, it was difficult to even shoot in the back lot sometimes because, it, it, you know, the, the tours were going by. And even if, mm-hmm. even if they weren't coming through your set, you could still hear, you know, and over to our left is the shark, you know. <laughs> you, would, you would hear, you know, the tour guys, you know, giving background commentary. So um, it um, – but you know, I I can still watch movies made just recently, and I can I can I still recognize uh, the Universal lot, the the Warner Brothers Burbank lot. I can still recognize the 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 um, the back lots to all of those. I know. Well, I guess those actually, are really I kind cute. of I kind of miss sometimes. It's um, uh, like when they show old the Valley the way it used to be, like in an old Remington Steel. I love yes. seeing that because that was the valley I grew up in. And it's sure. like, oh, my God, look at Ventura Boulevard. I remember it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I um, the um, I loved working on um, studio, at a studio. Like when I joined Cannell Productions, uh, it was based at Paramount. We were in the building that, where Desilu Productions where where oh. uh, Lucille Ball and you know Desi Arnaz had their um, you know their headquarters, and um, and you know I, I you know wonderful funny things that would happen when you're on a an active lot. At the time that I joined them in, at Paramount, I remember uh, pulling in the first day through the main Paramount gates because I wasn't sure 
I, I didn't. They hadn't given me a place to park yet. So I pull in and I look up and it's a and I you know I've driven over there and it's a beautiful blue sky. It's a gorgeous day, in California. <laughs> and I pull in and it's like, wow, wow. There's a this, when did that happen? There's a storm coming in. What this is? And then I, you know, I made a left or wherever they told me to go. And what I was looking at was this enormous backdrop painting of a stormy sky. <laughs> okay? I mean, I mean, it was like it was on the side of one of the sound stages. So that's how huge it was. And where I was driving was to the main parking lot. And this used to be a common thing. It was when they were the um, – at that point, it was, uh, it was War and Remembrance. They'd already shot The Winds of War. That had already aired, okay? <laughs> and they're okay. shooting the, the 20-part miniseries or whatever it was of War and Remembrance. And they used the parking lot um, where they would shoot. They would flood the parking lot and shoot the miniatures – of the ships, <laughs> of the warships. That's interesting. Yeah. Because when and, I worked there, it was they were doing Star Trek, and they used the front parking lot for the ocean for Star Trek Four, the movie. Yes, yes. And so that parking lot was often submerged. <laughs> oh my God! Underwater. So but the hilarious part was that that was that stormy background was what was what you would see in the credits of especially you know winds of war because it was you know it was great like i told you i thought a weather front was moving in <laughs> as i was driving to the to the parking lot until i saw that it was a basically a back backdrop and yeah. and so that was the backdrop for the ocean and the you know the 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 scenes of the, the from Wins from War and Remembrance. That was a good miniseries, by the way. <laughs> oh, the, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. 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 It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, Jane Seymour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was so. So it was. You know, that's the the fun part of being on a uh, being at a studio, and also like when I was at uh, when I was at Universal, and they would score your episode. Uh, I would, um, the scoring stage was literally just, you know, that was the, on the other side of the, of the cafeteria, the, the restaurant, and I would just walk over and go sit in on the scoring, That's and, cool. which is one of the most amazing things to, you know, to watch that happen, and, uh, and you could just, you know, I remember when I first worked there as a secretary, just walking around, I mean, you could just, you, there was not the security there is now. Um, but, you know, at lunch, you know, another friend and I, we just walk around, we walk onto the sound stages to see what they were shooting. You know, if you knew what to do, you know, when the lights are not red, you can walk in. And, and, uh, and of course, we worked there, so we looked like we knew what we were doing, even if we weren't part of the show. And I remember walking in and watching um, them film a, a scene from The Rockford Files, which was one of my favorite shows. And yeah, it was it was just it it was um, it was unlike any other kind of job. <laughs> yeah, 
And yeah. Um, I gotta ask though, was mm-hmm. I mean, Lucy and Desi really created an entire studio system when Paramount bought it and everything. Is there anything that shows that what they did? I mean, was there any kind of like museum or tribute or anything? Because I mean, I've only been in Paramount either for a um, movie preview or to act, so I I never got to look around. But you worked there. Is there a tribute to Lucy and Desi? Uh, well, in terms of an actual site to go and see something, you know, the the one that Universal is the one that has Lucy's um, recreated dressing room. I, yeah. That I remember from when I was working the tour. <laughs> right. Yes, but the um, um, uh, at at the only thing that I know that is you know any kind of um, I don't know the tribute to Lucy is that the the little square that in the quad where her building is one of four sides that surround it um, is called Lucy Park. But that's the only thing. I, I mean, maybe the the gift store. But even back then, I, yeah, no, in answer to your question, I'm not aware of anything that is a formal uh, recognition of the contribution or, or whatever. But that might just that. be because, you know, they um, – didn't they shoot in New York? No, they shot in California. That was the big deal. That's why they, that's why they did the, the filming. Because that was Desi. Um, Desi, uh, Lucy wanted to uh, live and start having a family, and so she wanted to be in California. The studio wanted her to shoot in New York, but Lucy didn't, so Desi negotiated it, that they would shoot in California. And then the studio said, well, Lucy does better when she's in front of the audience. And he goes, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of that. Well, nobody's ever done that before. I did not work with her, but I was on the um, 
I was on several Writers Guild uh, committees with, with DC. So yeah, so I know her. Or she, she was an amazing away. lady. Yeah. Yes. Um, the reason I asked because I I met her like uh, about a year before she died. She was I was on a panel with her. I, mm-hmm. You never saw a more nervous I, as a writer. I I never met never saw a more nervous girl than me sitting next to one of my heroes. <laughs> Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I kind of, you know, um, when when I was living at home um, that year that, you know, between college and moving out to California and I was watching the Rockford Files, there was one, well, there was a woman that was a producer and a writer and her name was Juanita Bartlett. And I remember <laughs> thinking, I wonder who this person is. And, and when it, uh, when I finally, when I got my own office uh, as a staff writer on Magnum, and I, and the, uh, you know, the office people said, okay, here's your key. This is the room number, you know. And I walked down the hall from, you know, uh, from where Don's office was, and uh, and the nameplate was still on the door that was my new office, and it was Juanita Bartlett's. Oh, yeah. So that was, and so then I got hired later, two years later, I get hired at Steve Cannell Productions. And of course, Juanita had joined Steve over there. So I finally met Juanita Bartlett. And I I told her that story about, you know, being, you know, not that I idolized her, but that the idea that there was this other woman that was, you know, you just didn't see women's names on credits. And then to walk in and get her office was, it was, it was all, it was the whole, so much of the early years of my career was almost like it had been scripted by someone writing a Cinderella story. I love that. That's great. That's really uh, it, beautiful. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> The way it all unfolded, it was like at a certain point you just had to say, well, I guess this was just destined. I have a question because, um, I, as you know, I'm a friend of Stephen L. Sears. And oh, yeah. One of my favorite shows, Athena, and you wrote one of my favorite Athena episodes, Death and Change, at least a story that it was based on. Where did you come up with that concept? It was such a beautiful uh, episode. Well, I can take very little credit for that episode. Um, that was not uh, my experience on Xena was an example of how um, I'm trying to be diplomatic about this of how women should not be treated. Oh. Um, and it wasn't that I was harassed or there was sexual assault or anything like that. It is the idea um, that the prevailing opinion about how um, women should sound and behave and all that is uh, created and perpetrated by male creators. You know, don't idolize or anything, any of the shows that you, you know, don't don't ever want to meet the people you think are great. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the standing uh, piece of advice because the things that go on behind all of these shows, uh, a lot of times are, are not, uh, they do not speak highly of 
some of the people involved. And it was um, it was just a pervasive opinion. Um, you know, if you want to read um, if you want to read something interesting, uh, look up uh, Google um, Teresa Rebreck. I think that's how you spell her last name. She was a writer on LAPD Blue. And she wrote an article for one of the um, um, one of the magazines, um, you know, that's like that. And it's uh, it, it's very eye opening. As friends said to me when they read it, they said, "We thought you you could have written this." But the um, it's hard to understand when I I went I worked at Stephen Cannell Productions, which had already had a female working for them, and so they there was there was very little there was no prejudice about what you know the different sexes were a, able to achieve. Steve Cannell was not he he was just the antithesis of all of those you know sort of archaic uh, attitudes about that. Um, having said that, though, it it was still very, very difficult to try to get anything done that came from a female's perspective. And that's not necessarily Steve, or was Steve Cannell's fault. That was just the, the way it was. You know, it, just like people of color, no, one, no one's attitude, opinion, life's experience was, was of interest to the networks, and there were only three at the time, except a macho male or someone who is funny. Women had a better shot of it in comedy, but because there were female, um, uh, you know, leads like Mary Tyler Moore and stuff. But um, the the whole idea that uh, that you know a woman would even be considered for a job, um, you it, it had to be like that. Here's a novel idea. Why don't we hire a woman? That, I mean, that was just the pervasive attitude. That makes me so sad. <laughs> uh, yes, it's horrible, and it's better I, now. I, but I, when I was when when I was became an executive, is it better now? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, uh, well, look, Shonda Rhimes. Um, yeah. So um, when I was. An ex- I was made an executive producer. I was the showrunner of Riptide, and I was 28 years old. And I was the only female, other than Juanita Bartlett, who by then had was produced. It was the exec on. Um, I can't remember the. Uh, it was a. It was a detective show. I can't. Re- based on a series of books. But anyway, she had left the company. And um, I don't even know if she was actually the, the active showrunner at that point, but it was just the two of us in one-hour drama. Wow. So I loved uh, that Riptide, was a big by deal. The way. That was a great show. Pardon me? I loved Riptide, by the way. That was a great show. Oh, thank you. Well, I will take credit for that one because <laughs> I, <did, laughs> I, did, I did lead it, yeah. Um, so... Anyway, I, I appreciate the fact that you enjoyed the death and chains. Like I said, I don't really know how much of what I wrote was even in there, but um, it's a beautiful 
episode. It was it was just very touching. It, I thought you could tell it was from a woman. <laughs> At least a story. <laughs> um, yeah, I you know I I I don't know. Like I said, I didn't. Um, I've never seen it. Never wanted oh. to. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Um, now Stephen said some really lovely things um, that you helped him get into the industry, um, along with uh, a couple other people. But he he thought you were super duper. Could you tell me a Steve story? Can I tell you a Steve story? Well, yes, because Steve and I have remained friends, so we've been friends for over 30 years now. So um, the 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 best, but I'm assuming you you mean in terms of working together. So the best. Well, whatever Steve, you want to tell me. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, the the best uh, Steve story. He's that, been a, he's a friend of the show, so he's been on a little right, that yeah. listen to my show. No, Steve. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, well, maybe he told you this story, um, but it was when it, uh, I, he, he and his brother, uh, Bert Pearl, came in um, to pitch stories. And I guess, you know, um, I think it was we were on hiatus at the time, so we weren't shooting, and I think I was out of town, and the uh, the the producer, the story editor, Tom Blumquist, was in in the office, and so he was handling some of this kind of stuff. But the point was is that a meeting had to be set up to bring in Steve and Bert, and um, and you know either Tom or a secretary called and said you have a meeting with, and they said you know Babs Grayhoski, and so the. Uh, the story is that you know Steve and Bert were like, okay, what do what do you think a Babs Grayhoski looks like? <laughs> because it is an unusual name. It is. And and um, uh, I mean Babs is just short for Barbara, but my last name mm-hmm. is you know is is kind of a a, a different type. And um, um, and they they expected a Barbie doll. <laughs> It's like it sounded like to them, like, and I think what they meant is like Bab sounds like you know like Biff or you know one of those <laughs> like fifties era kind of names, and it sort of is. Um, and but anyway, that says like that that's what they expected, and and that isn't who walked in. So uh, uh, it was, and 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 apparently what happened with for me is that we had just recently had this horrible experience with a freelance writer who came in, one of those types that came, that came in and was going to tell us how we should do the show. Oh, no. Okay. And, uh, and I don't remember this saying this at all, but this is the one that's the line that has been attached to me forever regarding, you know, Stephen Burt, is that when I met them, I said something to the effect like, and, um, and you know, we've been burned by freelancers before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know how that I wasn't insinuating that they they were going to burn us but I was still obviously pissed off about the experience that I had just sort of been through and it spilled over into that meeting but um and then you know as Steve will tell the story as soon as we got into talking about their story I was 
you know, perfectly fine and nice and all of that. But it was um, that's that's kind of the uh, that's always been the sort of one of the taglines that Steve and I will just look at each other and say we've been burned by freelancers before. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? They must have said, uh-oh, when you said that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure it's like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but again, I, I have no recollection of saying anything like that. So clearly my head was, uh, you know, I, I thought that I was concentrating on, you know, them, and then in that moment I was, I still had the leftover uh, irritation with the other writer. talking about you know their stuff i was um that one comment seemed an anomaly taking my pension, uh, I guess, like, um, I guess after I turned 53. Um, so by that point, I had already put in um, over 20 years. And in the um, as, as a woman, an aging woman, um, and, you know, kind of losing touch with, you know, how your core group sort of splits up and, goes different ways and if you're not you know if you don't keep up sit out one season you you can go cold especially if you're a woman or at least back then so um i you know i just got burned out by the whole thing and retired and and i ended up going back and getting a master's degree in um, psychology and now i'm a licensed trauma therapist Wow, that's, that's an interesting change. Well, um, it, it, yeah, if you just say it like that, it, it is. It does sound rather abrupt. But um, when I when I um, when I retired, I was uh, also dealing with um, an, an elderly mom who still lived back in Texas. My dad had already passed on, and and she was getting a dementia, and I knew that I was going to have, you know, so I was dealing with it, going back and forth, and a whole bunch of other things on that order, and um, and so I was trying to think of, well, if I'm not going to write professionally in the business, what do I have the same passion for? Because I can write, and I still do, as much as I want, um, and at the time, it was um, I was very against the wars going on, and and I was I'm an army brat, so I and I had an uncle who had major PTSD as a marine in the Pacific during World War II, and I would had always followed uh, post traumatic stress disorder, and I thought you know i kept hearing all this stuff about you know all the the troops coming back and how much with the ieds and all that stuff and and how much in need of therapy they were so 
that was the one thing that really uh, sort of touched my buttons the most. And so I decided to pursue that. Um, now, the irony is that after going through all of that, the only way, you know, it, it was a, I went back to school when I was 54 and got my, I was officially formally licensed just before my 60th birthday. And the irony is that the only way I could see veterans um, was through, uh, was pro bono, basically. Mm, for free. <laughs> yeah. And uh, because the VA hospital system is so messed up that um, it, the, the politics and the bureaucracy and everything made it, it you know, and as frustrating as it was for me as someone that's trying to provide services, it was triple tr- frustrating for <laughs> veterans trying to get mental health services. So there was a, a, an organization called the Soldiers Project that was started here in California as a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that hooked um, up, up you know, licensed practitioners with uh, with veterans seeking care outside the the VA system, and so I joined that, and then I you know I could make room for two veterans um, in my practice uh, to see on a pro bono basis. So I did that, and then the um, just before the pandemic started, the Soldiers Project, for lack of funds, uh, had to dissolve. So, um, so you know, I, I I still have a practice, and I I concentrate mostly on uh, trauma, which and everyone is experiencing. That, and you said you're still writing. Are you writing about your subject, or are you writing articles? What are, What are you writing? Uh, well, I've written a play. I've uh, finished a, just recently finished a series of short stories that I started writing, you know, like over 20 years ago that was based on me growing up on an army base, Ooh. the life of a um, an army brat. And I finished that and and now, you know, trying to see what I can do with that to get it picked up by somebody. And I'm, um, I've also started um, another novel. So, um, yeah. So is, any, is the play, did you already produce the play, or has it been coming out, or what's happening with The that? play? Uh, no, it's, you know, a lot of this was, a lot of this got completed or whatever on the cusp of the pandemic. So, Things in terms of you know what you could actually mount up and you know all of that were put on hold, but as we maybe inch our way out of this situation, I'm going to start pursuing um, more avenues on that. Cool. So um, we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, do you have like um, are you on any social media or do you have an email where somebody can uh, send you a note and say hi? Uh, sure. I'm not on any social media. I check Facebook once a month for uh, just to check in with colleagues in my line of work in the in therapy. Um, but if uh, someone wants to reach me, they can reach me at 
uh, B. Grayhoski, and I can spell that B G R E Y H O S K Y, at AOL.com. Great. I want thank you very much for taking time out of your day for being on my show. Oh, you're more than welcome. It was fun to do. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. You're welcome. 